0: The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. A poll was conducted in North America, and this was the question that was asked of Christians. Christians were asked, do you think that you could be a very good Christian without attending church? 81% of North Americans said yes. So here I've got this... Brother that's about to leave his calling. I've got brothers in another part of the world, brother and sister, who are just absolutely thrilled that they've found a church. And then I've got this material in front of me. 81% of North American Christians say, eh, the church is what it is. I don't need it. Charles Spurgeon, who was a pastor um, in London centuries ago, um, uh, and, and this is what he said. Give yourself to the church... You that are members of the church have not found it perfect, and I hope that you feel almost glad that you have not. If I had never joined a church until I had found one that was perfect, I would never have joined one at all. And the moment that I did join it, if I found one, I should have spoiled it, for it would have not been a perfect church after I had become a member of it. Still, imperfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth, all who have first given themselves to the Lord should as speedily as possible also give themselves to the Lord's people. And so I'm preparing this and I'm walking through this. And I'm, here's a brother who's about to walk away. And here are brother and sister who are glad they found a church. And 81% of Christians in North America say, the church, I don't need it. And then Charles Spurgeon, the dearest place on earth. I'm afraid that a lot of people would side with the poll over, Spur- uh, over Spurgeon, that they would, they would find themselves in the 81% rather than with Spurgeon saying that the church is the dearest place on earth. Churches in America, let me get, just give you some reasons for this. Churches in America are declining. Those who study the church, look at the church around us, the statistics tell us that between 3,500 and 4,000 churches across denominational lines in America close their doors permanently every year. 3500 to 4000 churches just closing up. And these are churches that did not didn't just start last week. These are churches that started and have had a history and a heritage and they started for the right reasons, but somewhere along the way they've gone through the life cycle and they are at the point of death. Tom Rainer uh, said that if nothing changes that up to 100,000 churches will close in America. Over the next decade the church in America is in a crisis. I think people are showing this with the way they treat the church. Not only is the church dying, but the reason I think people would side with this survey over Spurgeon is that you look around and people are busier. People are busier than they ever have been between work and sports and shopping and entertainment and I'm not'm not. I'm not casting any of those in a derogatory light because I enjoy all of those myself. But between all of these things, we schedule very little margin in our lives anymore. You know That margin, if you open a book, you know that area around your pages is, is an important thing. I mean, think of how it would be if the text just went all the way to the ends and you never had any space in between. It would be pretty difficult to read that, wouldn't it? The margin serves a good, good point, a good purpose, and, and we oftentimes are not scheduling any margin into our lives anymore. Every spare minute is scheduled with something. And when that is the case, churches are the ones who pay the price. Church is often the first thing to be pushed out of people's schedules. The Internet and social media make it impossible, or or they make it possible, I should say, to to hear sermons, to read blogs, to listen to uh, quote-unquote Christian music, And the Internet, while being a great thing, has become this tool that almost makes people think that, why do I need the church when I can get everything the church has to offer me online? The same thing that's happening happening to the the brick-and-mortar shopping mall in America is happening to the brick-and-mortar church. People are saying, who needs a brick-and-mortar church anymore? I can just do that part of my life online. There are lots of reasons why I think, you know, that, that the church in America is shrinking, that, that it is suffering. And, and, and I think in all of this, there are common sins which are committed against the church. Some of those sins seem harmless, but they wind up doing more damage to us and actually to the glory of God than what we realize. Some of those sins seem respectable, even natural, But they may reveal more about us than what we really care to reveal or care to know. Today in our passage, Paul is writing to this group of Ephesian believers. We saw last week that that these were a mixture of those Gentiles, those who were outside the nation of Israel who had converted to Christ, and those those who were of the nation of Israel who had also converted to Christ, that both of them needed to be reconciled to God. That both of them were separated, whether it was their their non-religiosity or their religion, they both were separated from God and they needed to be reconciled to Him. And Paul is writing to them, and he's writing about the church and the gift that the church is. It saddens me to think about 81% of North American Christians saying that the church is irrelevant to them. That they can be a good Christian and they can be all that God really wants them to be without ever attending the church. It saddens me to to think about this conversation I will have with a dear brother and contemplating walking away from from all of this. Today, what I'm going to do is I'm going to explain the text and then I'm going to then apply it at the end by looking at some of the common sins that are committed against the church. Now, I've told you that there may be a point where I stop after verse 19 and cut this message short. I am prepared to go all the way through 22, but I understand that you may not be able to digest all of that. Okay, so we will see how this goes. By the way, the more engaging you are with me, you know, maybe the shorter I go. I don't know. (laughs) You know, it's like pastor bribery, you know. I don't know. So here we go. Let's look at our passage. And and I didn't mean for that to be so somber, but it is somber. It's a serious thing. The church is a gift to us. And so I want us to see it as that. Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, beginning in verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, and you are members of the household of God. You've been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, Grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This morning, I, I, I want to just point out some things that are true of us because of Christ. Number one, in Christ, we have become supernaturalized citizens in the kingdom of God. In verse 19, he says there, you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. These Gentile converts that he's writing to even even has in mind these these Jewish converts who've lost everything because they have decided to follow after Christ. He's writing to them and he says, this was true of you. You were strangers. You were aliens or sojourners. Those words, strangers, points to the fact that they were from, it referred to people from other countries. Aliens or sojourners meant those people who lived in a land as resident aliens that was not their homeland. They were just there living. And this is what he's saying. You, this was the case for you. In other words, you were outsiders. You didn't fit. You didn't belong. And this was obviously, I think, for some of them, even though they had come to Christ... And God had brought them into this new family, this, this new people. As we looked at last week, He had made this one new man where there were two. First, these, these old habits die hard. And, and they were looking at what used to be true of them and it was affecting how they were interacting with one another in the church. But Christ's work had changed all of that. There was a commentator I read by the name of O'Brien and he said, now, that now they belong in a way that they never did before. They are neither homeless nor even second-class citizens in someone else's homeland. Instead, they have become fellow citizens with the saints. And saints there is not referring, he's not talking to Gentiles and saying, now you belong to the kingdom of God just like the Jewish people always have. He doesn't say with the Jews, he says with the saints. Meaning those who have come to God the exact same way. You remember last week, if you were here, we talked about that, that the Gentile and the Jew had... Only one option to come to God. It wasn't through, uh, through any of their religion. It wasn't through any of, uh, any of their knowledge or anything. They could only come through Jesus Christ. And those who come to God through faith in Jesus Christ are now saints. If you're here today as a believer, as a follower of Christ, and you're putting your only hope in knowing God and being right with Him on the finished work of Jesus Christ on your behalf, the Bible calls you a saint. Kids in the room, look at your parents, if you're a believer, and say, see, I'm a saint. pastor says I'm a saint, you know, right? You know, this issue of citizenship is something that hits home with us. As citizens of the United States of America, we have it pretty good here. I mean, you, you heard Matt, we are, we are so thankful for those who have served uh, our, our, our military, our armed forces, and have have made sacrifices so that we can meet like this, so that we can have the freedoms that we do. If you listen to talk radio, you would think that America is the worst place in the world to live, right? Uh, I mean, I listen to talk radio, and sometimes I'm like, man, why am I living here? And then I look around and I say, I know why I'm living here, right? I'm thankful to be living here. If you listen to too much of that, it seems like we have it so bad, but we actually have it really good. We have all sorts of privileges and protections that we take for granted, I mean, we live a lot of our lives. We go about our lives. We conduct our business. We, we seek medical attention. We go to the polls and we vote in elections. We have legal protections, all because we are citizens of the United States of America, right? I mean, we, we have things like 911. I mean, we know that if, if at any point something goes wrong in our lives and we call 911, someone's going to be there. Now, I heard this week on talk radio, you know, complaints about response times. And I get all that. But there are places in the world, they don't have 911. You realize that, right? I mean, we stump our toe and we can call 911 there's going to be an ambulance outside our house in a few minutes, right? I mean, five months ago in Texas, a woman waited too long in the, in, in the drive-thru at McDonald's. They were too long to deliver her chicken nuggets. And she called 911. She was arrested, right? And she should have been. But this is where we live. We live as citizens of the United States. We have things like 911. We can call. There are people in the world who do not have such luxuries. Sojourners. Don't have. Especially in ancient times. They had no such comfort, no such protection. Now, I'll point it out to you with a biblical case. In Acts chapter 22, Paul is preaching, and listen to what it says in verses 22 through 29. Up to, this, up, up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. This is, this is what they say. He should die. What's he doing? Is, is, he, is he stealing from someone? Is he, is he committing some horrible crime? No, he's, he's talking. And they say he should not be allowed to live. And as such, as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune, uh, the, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks saying that we sh- he should be examined by flogging, which is the same thing they did to Jesus where they tied him to a post and they whipped his back. He should be examined by flogging to find out uh, why they they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do for this man's a Roman citizen? So the tribune came and said to him, tell me... Are you a Roman citizen? And Paul said, I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune was, who also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. So there were different rules for those who had citizenship and who didn't. Citizenship within Rome was highly coveted, and you could purchase citizenship. If you were outside of this, you had no protections you as strangers and aliens they could they could beat you you could be robbed you could be lied about you could even be murdered without without any kind of protection at all but now the bible here tells us in our passage they've become fellow citizens with the saints This new people of God, now they were not not sojourners and aliens and strangers in a land that was not their home. Without protection, without, without any type of rights, now they had been made fellow citizens with the saints. We read right over that and we miss what's being said. In Christ, you and I have become supernaturalized citizens in the kingdom of God. The power and the protection of heaven is ours. Do we realize this? That when Jesus was on the cross, and the Bible there tells us that he he could have called forth a legion of angels that would have delivered him. The same powers of heaven that could have protected him, but he chose not to call them on his behalf but suffered for us at our disposal. The military of the United States While I am thankful for its power, it pales in comparison to the powers of heaven that are for us. It's what Philippians 3.20 tells us when it says that our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We have been made, in Christ, supernaturalized citizens in the kingdom of God. And that should cause us great joy. I want to apply this at the end, but that's just what this text is telling us right here. The Bible then tells us also that in Christ we have become sons and daughters in the family of God. Not just supernaturalized citizens in the kingdom of God, but we have become sons and daughters in the family of God. The Bible there says in verse 19, not only are you fellow citizens with the saints, but you have become members of the household of God. If I were to ask you, if we were to go to lunch today, we were sitting across the table, and I were to ask you, how do you view the church? Do you view the church as a place or as a people? What would you say? This is not merely semantics. This is not simply wordplay that's unimportant. The Bible teaches us that there is an important distinction for us to know here. Uh, How many of you grew up in church? Okay. Okay. How many of you when you were kids were, were taught the little game with your hands? You said, here's the church, right? If you, if you were taught this, do it with me. Here's the church, right? Here's the steeple, and then what? Open the doors, and here's all the people, right? And we played that game, and we taught that to kids, not because we ran out of things to do, and oh man, somebody forgot to buy Cheerios, so what do we do now? You know, We taught that game because we wanted our kids to realize that the church was not merely this building. It wasn't a place. The church is the people of God. This is not just a child's game. This is an important distinction for us to never forget. The church is not a place. We have no Mecca that we travel to in a a pilgrimage. We have no wailing wall that we we go to and we we wail against and, and write out prayers and stuff them in cracks in the wall. If, if the fire that happened here in 2008, January 2nd of 2008, that destroyed our building, if, if it taught us anything, hopefully it taught us that what brings us together and what holds us together is not brick and mortar. It's not sheetrock. It's, it's not carpet. and It's not pews. What holds us together is that we are a people that have been redeemed by the means of the Blood and life of of Jesus. Church is not a place. Church is a people. It's more than that, the Bible tells us here. It's not just a people, it is a family. When the Bible here tells us that we are members of the household of God, it is pointing not to the fact that we are just random people who meet together once a week, but that we are literally this family of God. That we are a household that makes up the family of God. The Scripture teaches us this when it teaches that we have the same Father. When the disciples ask Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray, how did Jesus start that prayer? Our Father, right? The Bible teaches us that we have the same Father. Romans 8.15 tells us, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. We turn to Him. All of us have this in common. We we know Him as our Father if we are believers. If we are are Christians, disciples of Christ, we have God as our Father. We have that in common. Not only that, but Scripture reveals the intimacy that we have with one another. 1 Timothy 5, verses 1 and 2 says, Don't rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. And it's pointing here to the intimacy of the relationship that exists between the believers that are gathered in this local context. That it's good and right for us to think of one another as siblings in the household or the family of God. Uh, My wife is from Kentucky. We met there. We spent several years serving churches there. I grew up in East Tennessee, and, uh, and one of the things I learned about the churches in Kentucky is they literally refer to their pastors by putting brother in front of their first name. So I was referred to affectionately as Brother Scott. It was a little weird at first. Here are these grown men, and some of them, you know, maybe three times my age or what. You know, here, here are these, these women, Brother Scott. It's a little weird at first, but it is fitting. I'm not telling you that I want you to begin to call me Brother Scott. That's not the point of this. And some of you have asked me, what should we call you? You know, I'm fine with Scott or pastor, right? But it is fitting that, that these churches in Kentucky have decided to model this, that they refer to one another, they refer to their pastors, they refer to one another as brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so it is it is a tangible way that that illustrates that we are indeed a family i heard I listened to a sermon this week and i heard one particular pastor say that in the church we're not just visiting we're home uh, i've been married now for 22 years going on 23 years and, and i remember back and some of you will think back to your early days going to your in-laws And um, remember those first holidays when you would go to your in-laws. I remember feeling like I was such an outsider. Like I was only visiting, you know. Linda was in there in the kitchen fixing everything for the the meal. And, you know, Coy was sitting on the couch watching football, uh, you know, with sprite or something in a glass and and Atlanta's sisters kind of running around and maybe boyfriends and different things and I just felt like I was just so much a guest I I mean I felt like I was just visiting and it took me for a long time to really feel like I was not a guest but I was home after 22 years I guess it's probably 23 Christmases now uh, after that long when I go I no longer feel like a guest. I remember we, I would go early on and, and we'd leave from her house and go over to her grandparents' house and there would be Nenan and, and Papa in there and, and, and Uncle Louie and, and Aunt Brenda and all these people. And I remember thinking, Uncle Louie, man, I just looked up to Uncle Louie because he was an outsider too, you know. He had married into this family, but he, he just looked like he fit, you know. He, just, he was so much at home. He was the life of the party. He, just, he was it, you know. After 23 years... I have become Uncle Louie. <laughs> not not Christmas vacation Uncle Louis. I have become Uncle Louie in this in, in the family. I, after 23 years, I feel at home. When we when we go for Thanksgiving, we go for Christmas. I no longer feel like I have to sit in a certain area or don't don't ask this, you know? I feel at home. And this is the picture for us here in the church, that when we are in the church, we are no longer visiting, we are home. I would say to you that that because of this, when the Bible here tells us that, that we were strangers and aliens, but we have been made members of the household of God, I would say to you that we have not been saved for autonomy. This should teach us this. When the Bible refers to us as members of the household of God, we have not been saved for autonomy or isolation or to live this existence where we can say with 81% of North American Christians that I don't need the church to be a good Christian. We haven't been saved for that. We've been saved to be part of the family of God. For gathering with other Christians in the local families of faith you are right now in a local faith family, which is the church at Abner Creek or Abner Creek Baptist Church, right? There are churches that are meeting all over the landscape of our region. And those are local gatherings of believers. The Bible is talking to them. He's, in, in one way, in one sense, we are members of the household of God, meaning that we could go to another part of the world and we could encounter believers there and we could see them as brothers and sisters, right? Right? When we've done work in, in Toronto, or you've done work in New York, or done work in Kentucky, or wherever, right? And you encounter believers there, you can, you can literally say that you are members of the same family because of Christ, right? We have the same Father. But God's not writing simply to this this, this little seed church out there that, that, uh, that is the universal church of, of Christ, this 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 Catholic church, not Roman Catholic, but Catholic as in the, the, the church at large, all Christians everywhere, right? He's not simply writing in, in that sense. He's writing to local churches, those that, that capitalize the C because it's part of their name, the Abner Creek Baptist Church, right? This is, he's writing to these because you can't gather with a universal church. You can only gather with a local church. And he says to us that when we gather, that we are members of the household of faith, household of God. We have been not only made in Christ supernaturalized citizens in the kingdom of God, but also we've been made members of the family of God. I'm going to go ahead and go to this third, and we'll work our way through this. In Christ, we have also become interlocking stones in the house of God. Verses 20-22 through says this, Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. For a thousand years the people of God had looked to a physical structure as the place where God lived. And that physical structure was the temple in Jerusalem. Now, as we learned last week, when when Christ died, He he tore the the, the veil in the the temple, was torn from top to bottom, which meant that no longer do we have to come to that place to access God. Now, access was opened wide through the flesh of Jesus Christ. We also learned that He did away with the law, not meaning that, that there's no there's no moral law left. We're still called to, to a lot of, of the law in Christ. But the ceremonial law has been done away with uh, because he, the temple has become just not needed. So the, the people of God no longer after a thousand years don't need to look to a physical structure, but instead they need a new temple of God. One that is not built with literal stones in a static location. And the Bible here tells us what that temple is and and some things about it. There are three elements of this building structure mentioned here or implied here. I want to walk through these. Number one, the foundation. It says here that that, uh, you are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. The apostles and prophets are are those who first received God's Word and proclaimed it. It There's uh, confusion or different opinion about whether the prophets here are talking about Old Testament prophets or whether it's talking about those New Testament prophets who were the ones who took what the apostles had received and they proclaimed it. I I mean, it really doesn't matter one way or the other. It's all pointing back to the Word of God. It's pointing to the Scriptures. The point of this, this text is telling us that the foundation on which we are built as the temple, the dwelling place of God, All comes back to the foundation of the scriptures, the Word of God. That a building, one thing that's important about the foundation is that a building must conform to the shape of its foundation. It's it's not up to a building to to say, well, you know, I know the foundation goes here, but I kind of want to go over here. You can't build a building like that. You build a building like that, it's hanging off of its foundation. I know there's engineering and all this kind of stuff to it. There's ways to cantilever and all this kind of stuff. But just stick with me. Simple principles here. It's going to fail, right? The building is dictated by its foundation. And this is why Paul instructed Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, to preach the word. Paul understood, as did Timothy and as did the others, that the Word was important to, to give shape to the dwelling place of God, meaning the church. This is why I preach the way I do. This is why I preach expositionally. It's why I take books of the Bible and walk through books of the Bible. And we don't skip parts. We don't come to parts that are uncomfortable and go, turn the page, right? We, we deal with those things because we know that the Word of God must dictate how we are shaped. If, if that's not true, if that's not, if that's not accurate, then it's up to me to entertain you, and I'm just not that good. The reality is we've been given this authoritative word from God, and therefore it is more important that we hear it and say, God, shape us by your word than by me telling you clever stories. I read this, these two verses this week, and I was just struck by them as I was studying this. Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11. Familiar verses. I've heard these. They're on coffee cups, all this. But in this context, listen. Isaiah 55, 10 and 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, and, and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be. That goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. I stand up here every week knowing that as I faithfully just walk through the passage and explain to you what the passage says to us. And try to illustrate what the passage is is meaning for us. And then help you to apply what God wants us to hear in this passage. I understand that I am doing more in that than if I were to simply read books on how I can hold your attention, tell you clever stories, give you life lessons. Because God, the only thing God has promised that will not return void is His Word. So I give you His Word. Matt Chandler said it this way, the Word of God has been given to shape the people of God that in obedience to the Word of God, we we begin to reveal the manifold wisdom of God by being salt and light. We are built on the foundation of the Word of God. Not only that, the temple of God, us, the church, we are not only built on the foundation of the Word of God, but it tells us about the cornerstone. The cornerstone, the foundation must take its lines and its shape from the cornerstone. If you've done any building at all, you know how important it is to start with the proper angle. You've got to start with this square line, right? This square. If, you're not, if you get out there, the whole thing is going to be off, right? This is crucial. Isaiah twenty-six, twenty-eight, sixteen tells us that, uh, just who that cornerstone is. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. That passage is pointing forward to the promised Messiah who would be Jesus Christ. What this means for us is that Christ is the vital cornerstone on whom the building is constructed. The foundation and all other stones get their lines and their positioning from Him. That He supports the weight of the building and He determines the shape of the building. And He is the cornerstone. The Word of God is going to shape us, but the Word of God, all of it, all of it tells one whole story that points to Jesus. What this means for us at the local church level, I heard somebody say this, and I think it was Matt Chandler. I posted this on Facebook this week, but no aspiration other than knowing, savoring, and seeing Jesus Christ will ever hold the church together. All other methods and gimmicks and fads become like flex tape. You ever seen those commercials for flex tape? TM? Are y'all... Are you serious? You've never heard of flex tape? You heard flex tape? Okay, I just you know this is good. You know, this is not good. You know, you sit and just look at me. Flex tape. It, it all becomes like this. Flex tape. The commercials. Flex tapes. This awesome stuff. You got a you got a boat you want to go out on the on the on the lake with or in, into the marsh with. First thing you should do is run a saw down the middle of that boat, right? And then buy this flex tape and let's tape this thing back together and let's go out into alligator infested waters and let's trust this tape. Now I know nothing of the veracity of the claims about flex tape because I have never used it. The commercials are rather convincing, but I've got a feeling that if flex tape was so good, we would start building boats out of flex tape from the beginning, right? And the reality for us is that when we look to anything other than the foundation being the Word of God that points back to the cornerstone of Jesus Christ, it becomes like flex tape that is just this gimmick and this fad that may produce some results for a season. But sooner or later, it's going to fail. The only thing that will ever hold the church together is that we would see and savor Jesus Christ. That's why we sing the songs that we do. That's why we put an emphasis on singing here. We want you to sing these things that are true of God, right? We want you to see these things that are true of Jesus and to to love Him. Third, Element here in the building is not just the foundation and the cornerstone, but then it's the rest of the stones. The rest of the stones are, are pointed to, first Peter talks about this and won't take time to read that, but, it, but here the image gives us is this interdependency that is God's design in the church, that there's the foundation laid of the Word of God, all pointing back to the, the cornerstone of Christ from where we get our lines, our shape, bears the weight, but then the, the structure begins to go up, and the structure going up are these interdependent stones that, that are pressed against one another, and that's you and I. We learned that in the church that there is there's no place for, as I said last week, for racism or any type of, of, of uh, injustice in the church that we come together as people who have been redeemed through the same means, the, the life and the work and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We see this interdependency though in God's design in the church. There are no superstones in this building. There are no superstones that you know and sit down and there that's the church. Which means there, there's never ever going to be any one person. It hurts sometimes when we have people that leave out from among us. I told you in the beginning about a couple that left from our midst. That hurt, right? But there's no one individual or, or no one family that is this superstone that makes up the whole structure. Nor are there any any superstones or, or, or caves that, that 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 lead to this uh, that suffices this secluded dwelling of God. We can pull away from the church, and we can just do our thing, and I can meet with God, and I can worship God, and I become this cave in and to myself. No, in, instead, we are designed to be placed against one another in the building of God's house. And this requires us to all be true recipients of transforming grace. If, if, we're not, if, if we haven't all received the grace that we've talked about in Ephesians chapter 2, 1-10, through 10, that we were dead, and our sins and trespasses, but we have been made alive. If we're not all recipients of that grace in verses 11 through 18 in chapter 2 that that talk about the fact that we were at one time alien and segregated and separated and and alienated and without hope and without God, but we now have been brought near to God and to one another, If, if all of us haven't received that grace, then what happens when we begin to come up against one another in the building of the temple of God? Then we don't extend grace to one another. We look at one another and we begin to magnify our differences. We become a divided place and a divided church. And and we're not healthy and we don't grow. And the name of Christ in our community is is maligned. But instead, if, if we have received this grace, this is why we guard the front door of membership to come into this place. If we have all received this grace, And when when God begins to put us beside one another, it allows us to extend grace to one another. Experiencing legitimate forgiveness allows us to extend legitimate forgiveness. Experiencing extravagant love propels extravagant love toward others. Experiencing scandalous reception produces scandalous reception of others. Transforming grace allows big, mature stones to be placed against small, maturing stones in the building of God's dwelling place. And some churches seem to be segregated, that where everyone's either very mature or everyone's just getting started. And I would say to you that I think this is not at all what the Bible has in mind. The, the idea that we would target an this person, this is who we're going after, is, is not, I don't think, in the Bible. The Bible paints the picture that we should all be at different levels. There should always be this mixture. Let me illustrate it this way, a couple ways, and I'm, and I'm through. No one ever has a child and, and has a newborn baby, brings home that newborn baby and says, this baby's a lot of work. So therefore, I'm going to put this baby over here, and when this baby can sustain itself, it will be received back into this family. Nobody ever does that, right? Babies require work. But the good news is they don't stay babies, right? But they require somebody to put food in their mouth and change their diapers and all of this. And man, they, sometimes they make a lot of noise. And there's drama in the house because you've got a new baby in the house, right? They take work. I wrote this out, and I think this is crucial for us to realize and understand and to embrace. A church where there is never any drama due to baby believers is in trouble and death is on the horizon. On the flip side of this, no baby ever thrives by rejecting the loving care of someone older. I mean, babies may at times try to reject the loving care. I mean, don't they? Where do you think the the airplane game came from? Uh, open your mouth, it's coming into the hangar, right? Yeah, that baby, is. Mm. Mm. you know, move their face away, right? If that baby persists in that, is that baby going to thrive? No, at some point, sooner or later, somebody's got to shove some food into that kid's mouth, Right? A church where there aren't Christians who are a little further along who are willing to care for younger believers is just as much in trouble and so might be the name of Christ in that community. I'm praying that we would not so set up the ladder of of what it means to follow Christ that we might remove the, the lower rungs to where only those who are further along can now have access to the gospel. I'm praying that we would be a church that sets the ladder and says, oh, come on in. You don't, you don't know anything? You don't know the Ten Commandments? You don't know who Moses is? We don't care. We'll teach you, right? We'll teach you all these things. We want this to be a place where there are baby, brand-new believers as well as these seasoned, mature, I've walked with the Lord forever. You know, my grandfather died a year ago, and man, my grandfather, when, when he was there at the end, 92 years old, had people that he was discipling. I stood in the front of that funeral home or in that church and and by his casket and man after man after man after man came by me and said, your grandfather showed me how to follow the Lord. May we be a church that says we are the dwelling place of God. And in the dwelling place of God, there will be those who are small maturing stones that will be pressed up against these large mature stones. And may we not say, Huh, you don't belong here. May we instead love one another and extend grace to one another and forgive one another and help one another along. Here's the application. I'm done. I know it's late. It's quick. Based on these, these three things that I've shown you that the text has for us, that we have been made supernaturalized citizens in the kingdom of God, that we have been made members of the household of God, and that we have, have, uh, have, uh, are being made these interlocking stones in the house of God, right? These three things, four, four points of application. Number one, to consume but not contribute is sinful. Just as you would look at someone who is, a, who is a citizen of this country and who is just mooching off the system and just abusing what is out there and you would look on them with condemnation, we should look on one another. And I'm not saying in a condemning way, in a way that just writes one another off, but we should expect from one another that if we are citizens in the kingdom of God, that we should contribute to the work that he's called us to. Do you realize it is a privilege that he has called us to the work of redeeming a people to himself? Number two, to attend but not belong is sinful. We are members of the household of God We are not not meant to just simply come in and find a seat and plop down and then as soon as this thing is over to run out of here and and, and never have any interaction with one another. We are meant to be a family. And one of the ways we have built in here for you to to interact with family members, to go to Thanksgiving dinner with one another, if you will, to be Uncle Louie, if you will, is to join either a Sunday school class or a life group. And we want to encourage you there. Number three. Speaking of the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, number three, to agree but not to submit is simple. To to sit under a sermon and to amen, pastor and have no intention of going out and living in reality of that truth, applying the truth of Scripture to be obedient, to have no intention of that is sinful. To agree but not to submit is sinful. And number four, to be loved but not love is sinful. You and I have received so much grace. Oh, what a difference grace makes. You who were, pointing to myself, strangers and aliens, sojourners. You've been brought near. You've been been brought so near that you are a citizen in the kingdom of God. You are a member of the family of God. And you are a stone in the dwelling place of God. To receive that kind of grace and love and not extend it to others is sinful. Let it not be said of us. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I know that a lot has been said. And and God, I, I pray, Lord, that you would, in your power, your immeasurable power, that you would take what has been said, and Lord, that you would sift through it. God, that you would remove what I have said that is not of you. And Lord, that you would drive home. The hearts and minds of the listeners here, those things that they are made to hear, made to receive, and made to walk in. Lord, I pray that you would do now what I can't do, but that you would cause the ears of our heart to hear. Do it, Lord, for your own name, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. I want to give you an opportunity to maybe reflect on what's been said and then to respond. Uh, perhaps that would take the shape of uh, talking to me as a pastor. Now, I'll be seated down here on the front. I'd love for you to come to speak with me. Perhaps maybe you've you've heard today the gospel and, and would love to, to know this this cornerstone that we've talked about to, to have your life be built on that. Maybe you have become made, made aware today that you are far from God, that you are not a citizen of His kingdom, not a member of His family, that you... You don't have access to him. The only way to do that is through the finished work of Jesus on your behalf. If I can help you with that, I'd love to help you. And today, maybe you're here and, and uh, joining this church is on your heart, and you'd love to start a conversation about that. Uh, maybe you've been through that membership class, and, and uh, you just want to go ahead and make that commitment today. love to receive you today. love to start that talk. Maybe there's somebody here. You just need to pray with somebody. You just need to share something and just have someone else join you in prayer. There's a prayer room out these doors to my right, to your left. There are people there that would love to just pray with you. We make ourselves available to you. We preach the word to you so that you would then take it and by the power of the Spirit of God apply it. So reflect and respond as he leads.